Good morning. <laughs> hey, I just want to highlight again what Jonathan just went over there. Council is a very important part of how we govern and run our church. Um, they handle all the large money decisions. The, the church is not run just by the staff. It's actually run through the body of the members and through the council. And so the council is a very important thing. And I believe, uh, I, I don't know if it's today or this week, but this is like the time to nominate somebody is dwindling. Okay, so do it today. Um, Mike, just to reemphasize that, Mike and Ray are coming off, but they're eligible to be nominated again for another term, and they did a phenomenal job. They did a very good job. Yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah, that's fine. We can, we can, <laughs> that's fine. We can do that, because they did a, really did do a good job. But if God's put on your heart somebody else that you feel like the Holy Spirit leading to you, or wisdom, or a logic leading to you, I encourage you to put that name down and take the time to do that. Hey, I know we already did that, but for the next just 10, 15, 20 seconds, just get a little rowdy, look around the room, just wave at somebody, tell them they're looking okay, even if they're not. They woke up on the wrong side of the bed, but they're here. So come on, look around, wave at somebody, shout, I want to hear some I love you. If you're online today, I want to see your setup. Can we see a picture of what church looks like for you today? What does your sanctuary look like at home? We just need to get some connection in the building today, right? All right. That was a little less rowdy than I was hoping for. But we'll take it for today. <laughs> hey, one other thing. You saw Holly Bailey's thing. It's happening today. It's tonight. It's an uh, evening service. They're really good. But at the same time, in the lower level, we're having a Super Bowl party for the youth group, okay? So if you hear some screaming, if you hear some shouting, if you hear some kind of high-pitched animal-like noises, do not worry. It is just a sixth grader playing Smash Bros or something like that, okay? So that's going on today, but it's going to be a really good day. All right, you guys ready to jump into this today? Yeah, <laughs> all right. We are starting a new series today on community, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. I don't know why, but it seems like it just, when I preach on stage, there's a few topics that I always gravitate towards, and I get the chance to bring them up and reemphasize them today, and community is one of the things that is, I am so passionate about. One of the things that I've been, uh, it's one of the uh, goals and about that runs everything I do here at church and the programs we run, and the motivation behind things is building relationships with other believers in the youth group, in the kids' ministry, into adult ministry here on stage. It's one of the things that we push up for. But before we get to any of that, I need to let you in on a bad parenting moment. Are you ready? All right. So I was raised on Animal Planet, okay? And when I mean raised, I mean we had the Farmer Five growing up. So when I go to my grandpa's house, we had cable. It was like jackpot, okay? And so we were allowed uh, copious amounts, unlimited amount of time of TV at my grandparents' house. And when we would go to sleep at night, we would watch the Animal Planet as a family. And just like three hours of whales eating each other, we would watch Animal Planet at night as a family. So when my daughter turned two years old, Nora, she's my oldest, uh, I was like, I want to be, I want to model that. I love animal shows. I love seeing the butterflies migrate to the south, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So I popped on Netflix. The first one, the Animal Planet came on. It was like 52 dangerous animals of the whatever, whatever. Great. That's awesome. Let's watch this. So we're sitting there watching, and these gazelle are jumping around bouncing, 
playing. Look at that, it's a baby one. She's wandering away, wandering away. Lion eats her. Nora goes, ah! Right? And then you have to, oh, shut the TV off, it's disgusting. Right, because this lion's eating the gazelle. I know, it's a bad parenting moment, okay? We learned about death at a very young age. But it did teach a very important lesson, which is that in isolation, <laughs> you're in danger of being eaten by a lion. That's where we're going with the whole sermon today, is how to avoid being eaten by a lion. But parents, you can use that, feel free. If you're in the grocery store and you always have that one kid that's like all the way over there, you're like, get over here before a lion eats you over there, okay? So, for your advice, you can use that as you want. But today, we are talking about how our isolation and our loneliness are a danger to our very souls. About seven, eight months ago, we preached a Siren series called Keep the Change. And we were learning all the things that in quarantine and in isolation and in, in lockdown, the things that we could actually keep in the season of hardship and trials. And one of those things was relationship. And so we preached this eight months ago. But who could have known that eight months later, we would still be seeing a, an increase in lockdowns and not be able to re-engage yet. And so now, again, we're looking and looking at re-engaging community again. And you may be wondering, it's like the dead of winter. We can't really go outside again. It's like negative 15 today, right? It was very cold. I almost turned around and said, I can't make it today. No, I'm just kidding. I made it today. But the reason why I feel so strongly, and Brian signed off on this, doing this series, to do it at this time, is because COVID did not create the problem of isolation and loneliness. COVID and lockdown and isolation and uh, being sheltering in place, those only made us more aware of a culturally prevalent problem that's already been happening. And so today we are talking about in community and biblical community and what that looks like. And we're going to be talking about this for the next three weeks and flushing this out and how to do it and the ways, what it does in your life and the ways that it feeds you and the ways that grows your soul. But today I really just want to set for you the picture of a foundation to build on, a biblical foundation of why I believe so strongly in community. And at the same time, why as a culture we've walked so far away from true biblical community. To do that, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your phone Bibles, that's fine as well. Go to Genesis chapter 1. And I believe that in the very beginning of Genesis, these, these creation chapters, God's not just telling a narrative or a story or a history origin, but he's actually setting a precedent for the rest of existence, the rest of time. And this is what I mean by that, is that God takes chaos and puts order to chaos. And what's something really interesting is that I really believe that Satan thrives in chaos, but God habituates order. And so you see God in Genesis 1, you see everything just bunched and mixed together, and he starts taking the light from the darkness and creates day and night. And you see the land and the sea mixed together and just going around, he separates them, he creates land, he creates sea, and he creates sky. And God just goes through methodically and makes an order and precedence that everything else runs on for the rest of the time. There's waves, there's fluctuations, there's seasons, and all these things, he puts order to our lives and to our earth. And one of the first things that he's doing on all of this is he, he makes something and then he takes a step back and he says, oh man, 
That is good. Oh, man. A vanilla bean glazed donut off, off the press. That is good. Oh, man. Wet animal planet shows. That is good. Unless you're two. Oh, man. And he, every time he just steps back and he's making and he's making and he's making, he's setting order to chaos. And he says, that is good. But in chapter two, he gets to a point where he says, that is not good. And what is that? It's man, Adam, being alone. For the first time in creation, in the first time we see God setting order, he says the first thing that is not good in God's new creation is that man is lonely. Why is this? For that, before we get to chapter 2, we need to go to chapter 1, verse 26. It says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, According to our likeness, they will rule the fish, the sea, the birds, the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them both male and female. And so in this very first chapter of the Bible, at the very end, we see something very simple is that God is communal. Let's make us, let's make man in our image. And so I love how pastors uh, Richard Plass and James Cofield say this. It says, the Christian God exists in relationship as father, son, and spirit. While existing as three distinct persons, they share one divine essence that is described as love. 1 John 4, 8 says, the one who does not love God does not know God because God is love. God is love. Yet it is expressed to us in three personalities, three expressions as the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so from the very first verse, we see God communicating, talking to himself. We should make man. Not only should we make man, we should make man in our image. And you see from the very beginning that God is communal, not only because he's talking to himself, communicating with himself, but also because he creates us to have relationship with him. He isn't somebody that just created it, winds up the train and lets it go and stands back and sees it goes around and around and around. He's interactive. He's with his community. Not only has God created the world, he's also the sustainer and inhabits his creation. Again, 1 John 4.16, it says, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. The one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. God is love. The one that loves remains in God, and God in him. God's chosen vehicle to express his divine reality, the chosen way that we experience God or love is through relationship. The way that we experience unconditional love, how God set it up, is through connection with him and with others. Why is this? Okay. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18. It says, Then God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper corresponding to him. 
And then God takes a rib out of Adam's side. He creates a helpmate and brings him to Adam. And Adam says, oh, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Man will leave leave his family and cling to his wife. They shall become one. And this is just beautiful scripture, poetic scripture. It's seen a lot of weddings and marriage renewal vows and stuff. But the important thing here, the really incredible thing here is that what's not said in the text is that Adam had relation with God in a way that I don't know that we can attain even post the Holy Spirit dropping. Adam was in a perfect world, a perfect time before sin separated man from God. Yet God said, this is not good. This is not enough. We need to make a helpmate for Adam. And so God, in the world that he creates, creates a partner and community for Adam. Now, I want to talk just for a second about that word helpmate or helper. This does not translate well in English. This word in the Hebrew is etzer, and it's referred in the Old Testament, it's 21 times. Two of those times, it's referred to as Eve. Five of those times, it's referred to... No, sorry, three times is referred to as Israel when they're calling on help when they're in war. I need my answer. I need help in this time of war. The rest of the 16 times that we see in the Old Testament is referred to as God himself. When you call upon the name of God for help. And so this picture that God created a person for Adam was not some kind of assistant or a helpmate or a level of authority over them at all. This is actually, I heard it this way, is that if you imagine an A-frame roof, meaning it looks like an A, a lot of church steeples look like this, right? Adam was one side, but he is not sustainable and not being able to stand up by himself. And so God creates a helpmate, an answer, that he's able to reach his full potential together, to stand together. And the rest of the times we see this in the Old Testament is when we call on God to fulfill us. God, my help in my time of need. God, I call to you. God, so we are not able to live to our full function, full personality, full potential by ourselves. God's system that he created was that we would have relationship with him and with others. This is the way they experience God, is in relationship. I love that God has always had a people. God has always had a community. The whole Bible is just a story of God interacting with his people. Again and again and again, this tragic, historic love story of God interacting with broken, failing people. And I love that through the ministry of Paul and Peter and Jesus, God breaks those boundaries, those walls, and now anybody that calls upon the name of God enters in the community of God. Anybody that calls on Jesus is now we are God's people. It has broken that, that realm of just being in Israel. It has broken that realm of just being the Jewish God. It is now our God. And we have become God's people. So the question, though, to ask is, what happened? Why, why are we even talking about community? This is all sounding good. We're all on board with this. We, we, we like all of that and stuff. So I want to read an article. 
This is by David Brooks, and uh, this is his New York Times article, but he later took that article and he, 2019, created it into a full book. And so a lot of today's sermon is going to be uh, based on a lot of the information in this book called The Second Mountain. It's very, very good. But I want to read to you this article, how he starts. It's called The Great Affluence of Fallacy. Affluence of Fallacy. It says this. In the 18th century America, colonial society and Native American society sat side by side. The former was buddingly commercial. The latter was communal and tribal. As time went by, though, the settlers from Europe noticed something. No Indians were defecting to join colonial society, but many whites were defecting to live in Native American ones. This struck them as strange. Colonial society was richer, more advanced, yet people were voting with their feet the other way. The colonials occasionally tried to welcome Native American children into their midst, but they could not persuade them to stay. Benjamin and Franklin observed this phenomenon in 1753, writing, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, habituated to our customs, yet he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble, there is no persuading him to ever return. During the wars with the Indians, many European settlers were taken prisoner and held within Indian tribes. After a while, they had plenty of chances to escape and return, yet they did not. In fact, when they were rescued, they fled and hid from their rescuers. Sometimes the Indians tried to forcibly return the colonials to a prison swap, but, and still the colonials refused to go. In one case, the Shawnees Indians were compelled to tie up some European women in order to ship them back. After they returned, the women escaped the colonial towns and ran back to the Indians. Even as late as 1782, the pattern was still going strong. Hector D. Cravor wrote, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of them having, by choice, become European. This made no sense. Europeans had all the technological advances. They had all of the wealth. They had all of this gain, everything that looks good on paper. Yet thousands of Europeans, when they got the taste of communal living, said that does not compare to this. And I love how he says that they voted with their feet and walked the other direction. Now, fast forward almost 300 years later, and we have become and continue to grow into one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, civilizations of all time. We have, we have all the uh, technological advances, all of the conveniences of a modern civilization. America continues to be the land of opportunity, fresh start, a place where you can expect and are expected to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make something of yourself. But to attain this, we had to move away from a communal group focus and individualism. And we are an individually, uh, individualistic focused culture. My, John Priest John Michael Talbot says it this way. It says, this form of living stands in radical contrast to the modern culture of the West, meaning group or communal living. In the West, the individual stands in ideological preeminence over the community. We've embraced individualism. We've become the culture of me and self over really sacrificing for the sake of us. This kills the possibility of any stable social relationship. It has vast ramifications throughout a culture. To quote John Paul II, we have become a culture of death. David Brooks, in this book, talks about how individuality has also not just become 
a way of living in our culture, but it's actually become an extreme way of living. And it's become, he calls, and he talks about it as hyper-individualism. And so hyper-individualism, I'm going to read a bunch of quotes to you guys really quick, and then we'll lay off them. But stay with me, because this is like a couple months of research all being condensed into one little ball to throw it out here in about 35 minutes. So I'm going to read a lot to you really quick. If you need to close your eyes, I'm not going to blame you, but here we go, okay? David Brooks, he says, in a hyper-individualistic society, people are not measured by how they conform to a shared moral code. They are not measured by how fully they have submerged themselves in thick relationships. They are measured by what they have individually achieved, status, admiration, being loved, follow personal achievement. Selfishness is accepted because taking care and promoting the self is the prime mission. There has always been a balance between the self and society. In some ages, the pressures of the group have become stifling. They crush the self, and individuals feel a desperate need to break free, express their individuality. But in our age, by contrast, the self is inflated, the collective is weak. We have swung too far in the direction of individualism. The result is a loss of connection, a crisis of solidarity, hyper-individualism, is the idea that the journey through life is an individual journey, that the goals of life are individual happiness, authenticity, self-actualization, self-sufficiency. The thing that hyper-individualism does is it puts the same message in all of our lips as how can I make myself happy? Joseph Hellerman in the book called When the Church Was Family, he says, Americans have made leaving the home the goal of the whole parenting process. We each socialize throughout our childhood to become independent of our families of origin, relationship independent, emotionally independent, financially independent, and geographically independent. And this is a lie that we've learned throughout our whole lives, is that I must earn my life on my own. The reason hyper-individuality, though, does not work in communities because of the nature of hyper-individualism, we're trying to elevate ourselves over everybody else. And whether or not this is a conscious thought or not, this is the prevailing thought of our whole culture. This is the prevailing thought that guides a lot of the ways that we, we do things, a lot of the media that we consume, a lot of the leaders that we listen to is that we must promote ourselves up. It's the primary mission. Yet our primary mission is connection with God and expressing that connection of love to others in community. <laughs> we just uh, finished up the fast, right? And on the fast, eating, trying to eat a lot healthier. And uh, so substitute a lot of lunches for just um, smoothies, okay? And so in my smoothie, I always try to sneak in green vegetables because if I can hide it with peanut butter and strawberries, then I can eat a pound of vegetables and I don't even know it, right? And so usually I always just put in a big handful of spinach. But one day during the fast, <laughs> I was out of spinach. So I thought I'll substitute what I have on hand. And so I looked through the fridge, and in the fridge we had some leftover Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so I was like, this can't be bad, all right? I've got enough strawberries in here, I'll just cover up the taste, so I'll throw them in there. And can I tell you that that was the worst smoothie of my whole life? It filled me up, but it was a very poor substitute for spinach. 
We have been created for community, but we have substituted slowly over the years. We've started substituting very, very poor substitutions in the place of genuine community. And so let's talk about what those are. The first one we already hit was this hyper-individualistic, this hyper-individuality way of living. The elevation of self instead of the pushing up of the group. This lifestyle can be defined and usually has these characteristics in it. I would, I would ask you to take a second, just as you're listening, do any of these boxes check off for you? I don't want to share the number that checked off for me because it's a little embarrassing. The hyper-individualistic life can be characterized by a life filled with consumerism, materialism, workaholism, Busyness or extreme haste, chronic loneliness, because it's all geared around personal achievement and development. And when hyper-individualism takes one more step, though, one more step into the extreme, you fall into something that David Brooks called tribalism. Because what hyper-individualism does, it does not allow you to relate relationally on a true emotional level. You're always holding your cards close to the chest. You don't ever fully show them. It's hard because what you do is that creates vulnerability, and vulnerability is a weakness of taken advantage of. And so in, hi- in hyper-individualism, we hold all those things close, and we are unable to engage in real contact, real face-to-face. I know you, and I see you. We always have a little bit of a mask up. And what that does is this perpetuated a culture of loneliness. We all experience loneliness at some point. And in some doses, in some forms, it can be good and not bad. But in hyper-individualism, in our culture right now, what we don't have is we have a plague of loneliness. You can actually track when this uh, mindset started changing 60, 70 years ago to the individualistic pushing up of self instead of the group how the mental health issues also skyrocketed. The loneliness became rampant. And so we become lonely people. And lonely people, remember, we were made for God, made for relationship, right? James Colfield, again, pastor, says, we were born for, re- for a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. But loneliness is proof of our relational design. We were created for loneliness, or we were, no, not loneliness. We were created for relationship, much like I was created to be sustained on food. When I get hungry, I know that's a sign that I need food. Chronic loneliness is a sign that you are not being fulfilled how God made you. And so what happens is that with, we are, our body goes into crisis mode, and we lash out looking for any way to connect. And what happens is, is that we fall into tribalism. And and David Brooks calls this the dark twin of community because it does bind people together. But tribalism, if the message of community is mutual affection, mutual building up, love and expressions of love, tribalism creates friend versus foe. Tribalism is a connection of mutual hate. Tribalism is finding your people that are against those people. At some point, starve for relationships, we realize that we are in danger and we look for any way to connect. Tribalism is always creating boundaries. 
creating a good guy and a bad guy. Tribalism is when we get to a point where we are looking for a war. And wars are made to destroy, not to build and to create love. If we look at this past season of politics and how we as a nation handled COVID and epidemic, you can see very quickly that it did not bind us together as a nation. But yet it put side against side in so many ways. And so when I read this, to me it was like that light bulb effect of saying this is truth. We've gone so far from community that we've entered into individuality, into loneliness, which positions us into an us versus them mentality. There's always somebody else to fight, always somebody else to win against and to conquer. It puts you together with other people, but it's not genuine community. And so a little bit, remember we're talking about substitutes. What have we put in place of genuine community? A little bit less dark than that, though, is just togetherness, networking, hanging out, chillaxing. That makes me sound really cool, doesn't it? Our social media profiles gives us the illusion that we are connected people. I can see 500, 600, whatever, fill in the blank, friends on Facebook or Instagram, and I can see all the pictures of their kids and uh, them going on trips and stuff, and it gives us the illusion that we are connected people. But all you're seeing is just what they want you to see. And again, it's not that face-to-face intimacy that comes out in the day-to-day living with somebody. You probably will not see me stub my toe and say a bad word. Like, be turd, right? That's the worst it gets in my vocabulary. But in my family, though, whom I round every single day, who is my first and foremost form of community, sees every bit of me. The good and the bad. John Mark Homer just says it this way, is that not the hidden me, but just the realest version of me. And you do not get that in networking or just togetherness. In college, uh, I transferred into my uh, college uh, as a junior at this small-knit Bible college. It was like 2,000 students or something like that. I knew nobody, nobody on campus. I knew absolutely nobody. And so I made it my mission and my goal to know everybody. And you can ask my wife, at the end of my senior year, I knew the kitchen staff, I knew the faculty, I knew the cleaners, I knew the commuters, I knew the people. I could nap on, at any given point, I could nap on 10 different guys' couch. I would climb through the window because I was a commuter, so I would just climb through the window and I would nap on their couch and then go back to class. I knew everybody. Amy was a little freaked out dating me. She's like, why do you know all these people? because I was desperately afraid of walking into the cafeteria and sitting by myself. I was desperately afraid of the feeling of loneliness and emptiness that that creates. And so I went into crisis mode and I learned as many people's names as possible. And it wasn't until a little while later and a little, little while longer when I got into a Bible study in a community group and had a mentor and started building real relationships with people that knew me more than just the surface, that I realized that all of that was just a desperate cry of a lonely person. And so sometimes we can substitute loneliness, or substitute networking, or just hanging out together 
for real genuine community. Sometimes we substitute, and this is our last substitution, is distraction. Did you know that in the last decade, sexual activity in young males from 18 to 24 has declined from 19 to almost 31%. But the thing that's really interesting about that is that it's not because of an increase of morality, it's an increase of distraction. Research says the vast entertainment options offered by the internet and digital media as a whole may be affecting young people from developing real life relationships. Internet and TV has separated us from family, neighbors, and meaningful connection. We live other people's lives, fill our loneliness with social media, video games, binging another TV show. It's easier to watch porn or to binge another season of The Office than it is to go on a date. We are distracting ourselves to death. David Brooks again says, in the age of the smartphone, the friction cost involved in making or breaking any transaction or relational approach approaches zero. The internet is commanding you to click on and sample a thing after another thing after a thing. Living online often means living in a state of diversion. When you're living in diversion, you're not actually deeply interested in anything. You're just bored at a more frenetic pace. We've developed over time a preference for technology than intimacy. And there's lots of other ways, lots of other things we could substitute in or reasons why, but here's some of the primary four when I sat down and was thinking about this, of areas and ways that we have put into our life instead of genuine connection and community. Why do we substitute community for all these port and cheap replacements? It's convenient. Community takes time and intentionality. It's so much easier. At the end of the day, 8 o'clock is about when we get our kids down. And 8 o'clock at night, uh, it is a struggle to get off the couch, to drag myself to the kitchen, to pour myself a glass of milk and cookies, okay? Like, it is so hard to move or do anything at the end of the day. Yeah, but when I was making this message, I thought back to myself 15 years ago. And I, I was trying to remember, I think I got my first cell phone 20 years ago. And I remember a time when I didn't have a cell phone, like most of you probably. I remember the time when I was just bored. I was bored, and was, so I would go and hang out with people. And you would go and do things, and you would be around people. Because I didn't, you did not have the access to the amount of uh, media and content to distract yourself as you do now. But now you have literally the whole world just right here in your front right pocket. I don't know if you guys get those texts that I do on Sunday with your screen time, but it's always like a little bit of a self-awareness moment of like, good Lord, I do not want to see that number. How did I spend that percentage of my week looking at somebody's dog account on Instagram? But yet we substitute a, a, a relational life for a distraction. Because it's easy. I talked earlier about the wealth that we have gained. And whether you know it or not, and we all have different, different situations, but we are the wealthiest people on earth. And David Brooks says this. He says, the paradox, that's the paradox of privilege, though. When we are well off, we chase the temporary pleasures that actually draws us apart. 
We use our wealth to buy big houses with big yards that separate us and make us lonely. Pastors Richard Plass and Cofield say, wealth and power prove to be poor substitutes for the matters of the heart. And Matthew 16 says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? We've swapped God's design for a false image that we think is success. So now, that was a lot of heavy stuff. Do me, do me a big favor. Everybody, even at home, you guys need this too. Just take a second and let's take a deep breath. One, two, three. Now let it out. We started in Genesis and we're going to end in the New Testament today. I want to talk to you about Jesus' call to community. Now, okay, that was a lot of stuff. And so what's the way out? What's the way forward? Matthew 7, 13, we're going to read this together. It says this. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life? Few find it. When Jesus talks about the way, and we've done a lot of work about following the master, becoming like Jesus, and uh, spending time with him to become who he was and do what he did. When Jesus talks about this, the primary thing that he is talking about is relationship with him. The first thing that Jesus is referring to is when he talks about coming and finding the way, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, is simply relationship with Jesus. Adam, his first and primary purpose was a call to God first. But the narrow road that Jesus talks about is a life with him. John Michael Talbot, the priest, Catholic priest, he says, when we hear the call to follow Jesus as his disciples, we do so as a personal response to Christ. But as soon as we follow him, we discover that a bunch of other people have also showed up. The initial response to the call of Christ is a most personal and intimate but the call to keep on going is unquestionably communal. It involves a community of disciples called the church or the gathering. I don't have specific scripture for this, but if you take any point of the scripture where Jesus goes to the shore or goes and he finds disciples and he calls them, Peter, John, come, follow me. What is not said in that is that every time he calls a disciple, simultaneously is a call to a Christian community. When he says, come and follow me, he's saying, come and follow me with all these other people. And you and me are no different. Jesus lived his life in an intentional community group. And so should we. The call to follow Jesus, to be with him, and to become like him, and to do what he did, is not something you can do on your own. It requires the body of Christ. And we're going to get into this in the next couple weeks about how God's called us to a new family and this body of Christ thing and who's the pinky toe of the church and like all that kind of stuff. We're going to get to this stuff a little bit later and we're going to get to how community can be so sticky and how past hurt and pain can darken your view of what community is. But today the thing I really want to just land on and help you see is that we were created, we were literally, as the slide says, made for this. You were made for community with God. You were made to be known and to enter a community where others are known. Community is this. It's a place that you can receive 
and give love. Community is where we go and ask for help and fulfill help and needs. We seek comfort, yet we also give it. We are known by others and we know others. We hear others and take time to listen and to hear each other. Community is a place, and Pastor Eugene Peterson says it's, I am not myself by myself. Jesus participated and lived in community, and so in an effort of following Christ the Master, we should too. We're going to close here in just a little bit, but before we do that, I just want to where do we go with all this? I just dumped a lot of information on you, a lot of things to think about. The first thing I would ask you to do as you walk away from this is take an honest evaluation of your life. What are your goals? What, what drives you in your day-to-day -day interaction and way you live your life? How, how, what, do those line up with what you were made to do? In March, Strategically, we're launching small groups, and so if you're interested in joining a small group, that's a great place to start, is getting to know the people that you sit by. Online, we'll have Zoom groups going, and so if you're still uncomfortable and don't, if you're not meeting with people yet, we have, we have opportunity to grow and have more Zoom groups where you can still connect and get this form of face-to-face -to -face together. I'd mostly just ask that you'd start with where you're at. Uh, we just moved into this new house um, because of COVID. We have some elderly people around us and some people have uh, uh, um, being very careful of meeting and talking to people because they have people at risk in their home. And so we've lived there for almost seven months now and we have not developed very good relationships with a couple of our neighbors around us. One of them's a little elderly and one of these last big dumps of snow, I saw him outside shoveling, shoveling his driveway. And so I finished my driveway. I've only talked to the guy maybe once or twice. I walk across the street and I said, hey, let's go. And so I start doing that. And then the other neighbor comes out and he starts. And then the other neighbor comes out and he starts. And the other one brings his snowblower. And pretty soon it's a group of guys of people that I've been trying to know, trying to get around with because there was a need. And we just stepped in to fulfill it. And when it later when I go inside, Nora's like, dad, there were so many neighbors, there were so many people out there, I got dizzy. <laughs> Love how kids think. Start with where you're at. Do you know your neighbors? Could you take somebody in this room to lunch after church? I'm going to pray and then uh, Pastor Braden. Actually, will you pray and just close out for us today?